Well, at this time, we're going to go ahead and get into the Word. Uh, look forward to seeing what God has for us in the Luke chapter 8. But before we do, why don't we give thanks to God and we'll ask Him for His wisdom and for the Spirit to work in our lives as we study. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, your righteousness. We thank you for the fact that uh, you are one who has made your word clear. Uh, it's clear through general revelation, through your creation, through our conscience. But Lord, it's uh, most clear through special revelation, through your word. As we have it, uh, as we uh, are able to read it, Lord God, as men were able to hear it, directly from Jesus himself. And as we see that and, and read of that today, Lord God, may we be attentive to how we ought to respond to your word. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that it is to, to study it. Lord, I thank you for, as, as Jude mentioned, the increased opportunity that we have to give to it during this time. Lord, we have been given more time during this period. We have more downtime Perhaps we're traveling less. Lord, we uh, perhaps have relaxed schedules. Regardless, Lord, we're, we're called to give an account for everything that you've called us to steward. Our treasures, our talents, but also our time. And so, God, make, make us mindful of how we should uh, be hearers and doers of the word. But, Lord, how we should be progressing from the milk of the word to the meat of the word so that we might not just be storehouses of information, but that we might be effective disciple makers, so that we might spiritually reproduce ourselves in the lives of others, starting in our families, but then extending to uh, our church family as we edify them, but then, Lord, even beyond that, to our communities, to our friends, to our relatives that don't know Christ. So, Lord, you might be glorified, and so that you might build your church Lord, we eagerly anticipate seeing you face to face. But in the meantime, Lord, may we be faithful to what you've called us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been looking at the book of Luke. And if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 is where we'll be today. And uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. In fact, I'm going to turn there now because I'll start talking and not turn there. And that's just what I do. And so let me turn to Luke 8, as you are as well. Now before I start, I want to show you something that was given to me. You may have seen these before. These are glasses, but they're not just any glasses. These glasses were given to me as a gift from my college and career group, oh, about a year and a half ago. Now they are glasses that um, are color corrective lenses. I think that's the technical term for them. So many of you know I don't see color well. I see color, but I don't see it the right way, or so I'm told. Uh, these glasses help me see color correctly, especially greens and reds. So if you were here in this auditorium, uh, you'd uh, looking at the camera, just up above the camera, there's two little dots that, that tell us when we're on. Uh, when, when things are broadcasting. And ironically enough, those are red and green dots. So when I look at them, I can see a slight difference. But when I put on my glasses, <laughs> the red is vivid and the green is green. In fact, uh, this afternoon, I took a walk with my wife and I wore these glasses. I wear them as sunglasses 
so I can get kind of double use out of them. And I went outside with them and I said, oh my word, the, 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 you know, everything is really green right now. And my daughter laughed at me because uh, she thought, well, it's always green. Well, for me, it's various shades of orange, brown, and dull green. That's just the way it rolls. At any rate, you say, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, these colorblind glasses enable me to see things as they really are. With my normal eyes, I see things, but I don't see things the way that at least everybody else sees them or the way that they really are. And you know, when a person is saved, it's similar to putting on these glasses. It's kind of seeing things, not kind of, it is seeing things for what they are. When a person's saved, in fact, they're given new eyes, not just glasses to see things temporarily. They're given new eyes. They are born again. They were spiritually dead, Ephesians chapter 2 says, but now they are spiritual alive, spiritually alive. Do you remember the time when the Lord opened your eyes to understand his word? You know, maybe you have uh, read the Bible prior to salvation, or you were exposed to the Bible at an earlier period of time, but that time when, when Christ saved you, if you know Christ is your Savior, where you're reading the same book or hearing it being preached, and it's like you're hearing things you've never heard before or you're reading it almost as if you're reading it for the first time. Some of you may remember how the pages came alive. You saw them with new and fresh light. And as we read God's word, we realize it is living and active, and it speaks to the innermost part of us about who we are and what we were made to do. Why don't all people see God's word this way? Why is it that for some, God's word the Bible, is a stale book that is used in churches and funerals, while to others, it is more important than even the bread that they eat. Well, I think it's similar, like I said, to me looking at the world with my eyes, and then looking at the world with my colorblind corrective lenses. This is what theologians call illumination, and we can see it clearly described in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Two, in, in particular, verses 6 through 16. You don't need to turn there, but I want to read just a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says this, <clears throat> Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, and this is particularly noteworthy in light of what we're going to be reading today in Luke 8, where Jesus is talking to those who should have understood what he's talking about. Back to verse 8 in 1 Corinthians 2. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen or ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, 
so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. And by the way, the we here is speaking to believers. Paul is speaking to the Christians in Corinth. Verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural, or we could say an unbelieving man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is, spiritually, who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we, believers, have the mind of Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 2, you have this uh, differentiation between the man who has the spirit, the believer, and the natural man. Today, we're going to see an illustration of this difference in Luke chapter 8. Where when Jesus speaks, there will be some who are eager to learn more and find out more from him. Yet there will be others who hear Jesus speak, yet reject what he has to say, and have no desire to learn from him. Regardless of their response, one thing is clear, and that's this. God will hold every man, and you, accountable for your response to his word. So let's look at Luke chapter 8, and I'm going to start reading in verse 4. It says this, when a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by the way of parable. The sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell beside the road and it was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And he said these things, as he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Or in other words, he who has eyes to see, let him see. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest, it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. You know, this parable is one that many of you might be familiar with. It's often called the parable of the sower. Uh, it's included in two other gospels, Matthew and Mark. Um, it's often also called the parable of the soils, because there's four different soils that are described. And Jesus here is using a parable and actually explains why he uses parables because the disciples ask him and in verse 9 we're told in verse 9 we're told that his disciples questioned him as to what the parable he said meant and he says in verse 10 to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God and the way I read that is you being the believer yet it says but to the rest it is in parables now, the rest are those who don't know Christ. In fact, there are those who, if we think back to what Pastor Steve preached uh, last week, it, it's those who could not believe the extent of Christ's forgiveness when offered to a sinning woman who is anointing his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. 
It's the religious leader who would look at this and not fathom the fact that he too was just as much in need of forgiveness as this woman was. This was the type of person to whom Jesus was sharing parables. It was to someone that needed to be forgiven. In other words, it was to an unbeliever. Now, the implication is here that a parable is evangelistic. Unbelievers, especially hard-hearted unbelievers, would be in Christ's audience. That Christ is giving truth to unbelievers. Yet, there's also the implication, and we read this clearly in verse 10, is that many will hear, but not respond. Why? Well, Christ says, in order that they may not see and they may not understand. Now, in my Bible, as I read this passage, I have verse 10 in uh, all bold face. And, and the reason why it is, is because it's a quotation from the Old Testament. In fact, this is a quotation from the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah was to proclaim God's message to Judah and to Jerusalem. It's where Isaiah is in the heavenly court and he sees the, I believe, the cherubim on either side or the seraphim. He sees the angels singing, holy, holy, holy. And he falls down on his face and he says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. And he hears God proclaim that there is to be a messenger to go out and declare, who shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And what God replies is something that is almost contradictory to the, the concept of a messenger. A messenger should be one who delivers a message with the goal of the one receiving the message actually understanding and acting upon it. Yet, what God says is exactly what we read here. Proclaim to Judah and Jerusalem a message that they will see but not understand. That they'll hear, but not comprehend. So, where Isaiah was to proclaim God's message, Jesus here was proclaiming God's word, and it was God's word because it came from Jesus, who is God, only for his listeners to grow harder towards its message. Yet, the implication also is that true followers of Christ would pursue after its meaning. There's a reason why I put those glasses on after I said, he who has ears, let him hear. It is that ability that God gives when a person is a true disciple of Jesus Christ, where they seek to understand, and God obliges by teaching them. In fact, teaching them and giving them more than they ever could have wished for. If you are saved, the Bible has been opened up to you in a way that is not available to unbelievers. Why? Well, it's because of what we read in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. The natural man does not understand the things of the Lord. And he can't because they are spiritually appraised. You know, we see these two responses here in this passage where the disciples are receptive, others are rejecting. We also see it in the ministry of Paul. The very last chapter of the book of Acts, we have Paul 
kept in prison and he's held there and there are Jewish leaders in Rome. He's, he's in Rome waiting to see Caesar and there's Jewish leaders who come to see him. There's quite a crowd that arrives there to hear him. And so Paul explains to these Jewish leaders how Jesus is the Messiah and he's giving the gospel to these Jewish leaders and it says that some of them repented and believed in Jesus while others argued amongst themselves as to who really Jesus was. And it says there in, I believe, verse 27, that Paul quotes to them this same passage of Isaiah chapter 6, this same verse that Jesus quotes in Luke 8. It says that Paul tells them, Isaiah rightly described your ancestors and you in that seeing you may not see and hearing you may not understand. So this is a familiar parable. And the disciples are wanting to understand what it means. And there are many parables that were given where Christ doesn't give a line-by-line explanation. But this is one of them. And from this parable, you and I can clearly see that God will judge you for how you receive his word. You see, Jesus doesn't deny the disciples' request to explain the parable. Instead, he clearly explains it. And so let's look through it. It's very uh, uh, self-defining. It's very easy uh, to understand because Jesus kind of walks us through it. So let's look in verse 11. Now the parable is this, the parable of the sower. The seed that is being sowed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and then in a time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. So there's four different soils here. This first soil that we read of in verses 12 and 13, I call these the hard-hearted. This is the soil where the the seed is spread, but it's along the way where people are walking. The soil is very hard, and the seeds can't penetrate into the soil. And so they uh, never grow. In fact, it says that the birds swoop by and and take it away. I call this hard-hearted because the, the gospel, the seed, the word of God has no chance to penetrate the heart of the individual. Now, of all of the soils, and this is a, this is a parable that, that I'm, I'm very familiar with. I've read it multiple times. Um, I've heard it preached multiple times. But I can tell you that of the four soils, this one caught my attention the most. Because of what it's, what's being described. It says here that the word landed beside the road... And the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. You see, there's two issues at hand. And for me, I always remember this thought of this parable talking about the primary issue, which is the hard-heartedness of the individual. But there's something else that goes on. It's 
not just that the seed falls and it's too hard for it to penetrate, but it's the fact that God's word is not received at all because Satan has snatched it away. Now, I believe this to be a literal action of Satan. I don't see this as somehow being figurative just in the way that I wouldn't see the uh, believers falling away in time of temptation and the gospel being choked out by the riches and pleasures of this life. I don't see those as somehow figurative or poetic. I see those as literally happening. I see the person who receives the word of God in good soil and and growing, um, I see that as literal. So it's hard for me not to understand um, verse 12 as not being literal, that Satan actually snatches away the gospel. And I'm thinking, how does this happen? How does Satan snatch away the gospel, the word of God, from an unbelieving heart? Well, one pastor put it this way. He actually describes three possible ways where Satan can snatch the word. And just like any good pastor, he makes it alliterative. So they all start with an I inattention, meaning that Satan keeps people from giving serious attention to the word of God. You know, I didn't ask Jude to do this, but when she shared her testimony, she actually quoted from 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5, which is really what I feel is appropriate here, in that Christians are told to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, why would we have to be told to do something unless we're disposed to do the exact opposite and the fact is is that we struggle with bringing every thought into captivity now imagine an unbeliever who does not have the indwelling presence of the holy spirit those thoughts are going to go everywhere and anywhere we have a tough time as believers focusing on prayer on paying attention when the gospel is given when the word's given how much more so an unbeliever in that Satan can actually allow for those spiritual thoughts that are shared to be snatched away or to not be attended altogether. So inattention, ill will is the second way uh, Satan could snatch away the gospel. In that there can be feelings brought about, feelings of hostility to the word, feelings of hostility to the messenger of the word. You know, in 1 Corinthians 1, it says that there are to some where the gospel is foolishness. Where when it's heard, it's something that is ridiculous or offensive. Perhaps you may remember a time where you heard God's word. And it was just like that. Where it was, you couldn't listen to it because it sounded so ridiculous. But deep down, after retrospect, after God perhaps cultivating the soil of your heart. Where you realize there is truth. And the Spirit revealing that truth to you. So ill will, maybe ill feelings towards the content of the gospel or even the person giving the gospel. Where it could be someone who um, frankly just doesn't like you or doesn't like the messenger giving the gospel. But then finally or, or thirdly here, ignorance. The Satan, that Satan could snatch away the word because of ignorance. You know, we also read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the eyes of the unbeliever are blinded to the truth. The God of this world has blinded their eyes so that they might not see, they might not understand. So it is very real that Satan could snatch away the gospel. Yet those 
who have hard hearts are still responsible for their response. And we'll talk about what that actually looks like in application in just a little bit. The second soil I describe as those who are weak. Those who are weak. In this we read in verse 13 where this is rocky soil. When they hear it, they receive the word with joy. So from an outward standpoint, it appears as if God's word is being received and welcomed. Yet over time, it fails to yield results because of difficulties. The translation I'm using here uses the word temptations. They believe for a while and in a time of temptation fall away. And when we hear that word temptation, we we think temptation to sin, perhaps. And that could be. I don't think that's all that it means. You see, this word in the Greek is the same word that we read in James 1 and verse 2. Count it all joy when we are confronted with various types of temptations. Or another word could be trials. These are difficulties. And for the person who, has, who is weak, the person who might have that rocky soil, the difficulties become too overwhelming for their fragile faith. Now this is in contrast with the believer that we read of in James 1-2 where he does count it joy when confronted with trials or temptations. Why? Because those trials bring about perseverance. And that perseverance ultimately leads towards righteousness and godliness. Now, this counting all joy when we're confronted with trials or temptations is really the opposite of what we would logically do. When we're confronted with difficulties, we view them as something not to be considered as joy or joyful, but terrible, bad. That word count it joy is actually an accounting term that, that James uses there in James 1. It's, it's kind of like when you have the debits and the credits And what James is saying is you need to credit those difficulties in the accounts receivable ledger. It's like the landlord that just got paid for the apartment he's renting. It is a credit, accounts receivable. He's been paid. What James is saying is that you are to reckon those difficulties as joy. As something that is to be a credit to your account. And the Christian will do that. It won't be something that is natural. But he will do that when those difficulties come. The unbeliever, when those difficulties come, see them as exclusively difficult. And the fragile profession of faith falls by the wayside. So we see the hard-hearted individual. We see the weak individual. This third soil, the thorny uh, soil, I would call the distracted individual. Again, as we read in verse 14, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. So similar to verse 13, they at least receive the word. So God's word appears to be received and welcomed, just like the rocky soil. But... When they go on their way, or as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. The reasons for their spiritual failure aren't difficulties. They're what I would describe as distractions. 
worries, cares, and riches. You know, this is the person uh, that, that makes a decision or, or thinks to himself that they will eventually get around to obeying, but there are other matters that are pressing. You know, it's kind of like that, that individual that, that, you know, maybe you've heard that phrase that says, life happens. You know, where did the time go? Well, life happened. You make plans to do something. You set goals. But life happens. And the years go by, and that goal is never really met. For many, getting to know more about God, getting to church, becoming more spiritual, getting in touch with their spiritual self is something, however, whatever verbiage they may use, it's something that they'll get around to. But frankly, the pressures of this world, the cares, the concerns, things that aren't necessarily bad, things that genuinely warrant our attention, those press out the need for spiritual attention. You know, this is an evangelistic parable, like I said before. And just thinking in the context of evangelism, if you were to pick any people group who would be the most difficult to evangelize, who would you choose? I mean, think about that. If the Bible were to identify any type of individual that would be the most difficult to, to share the gospel with, for them to see their need of salvation. Who would it be? Would it be the remote tribe that has never heard the gospel and steeped in paganism? Or would it be us? As I read God's word, I see time and time again where the wealthy, especially the religious wealthy, are difficult to reach with the gospel. We're given, uh, we're given the story of the rich young ruler who, when told of the cost of discipleship, walked away. And it's at that same time where Jesus says that it's easier for a camel, and you can finish the phrase, you can finish what I'm going to say, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter into the kingdom of God. To my knowledge, there's no other person described in that way. You also have the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where the wealthy man had his wealth and had the opportunity to be able to receive the gospel, and yet did not, and ended up being in torment. And then we also read in Proverbs chapter 30, a general observation of humanity, where the Proverbs writer says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Why? So that I will not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. What does a wealthy person need saved from? And the fact is, is that there can be those who greet the word of God with a sense of favor, with a receptive, at least outwardly, reception, uh, outwardly receptive heart, and yet the worries and cares of this world 
cause their attention to be distracted from it. So maybe one day they'll get around to it. Well, it's not all doom and gloom. There is a fourth soil, a healthy soil. This is what I call saving faith. This is saving faith. Why? Because there is fruit that lasts. Look at verse 15. But the seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with persevering. This is saving faith because there is fruit that lasts. John chapter 15, in John 15, Jesus describes those who you'll know as being his disciples because they'll bear fruit. Without fruit, there is no genuine faith. Without perseverance, there is no genuine faith. Unlike the hard-hearted, the word of God takes root. Unlike the weak, the word stays true through difficulties. And unlike the distracted, the word takes priority and isn't choked out or choked out by distractions of wealth or cares of this world. Now, in the other parable accounts, just uh, for sake of comparison, some describe the fruit being in different terms, 100, 60, 30. I really don't believe that Jesus is saying it's okay for a Christian to have varying levels of fruit. I don't think he's, he's saying any, anything other than the fact that when a person bears fruit, and when Christians bear fruit, there's going to be varying degrees of fruit bearing. Some will bear more, some will bear less. But the fact is, is that they are going to bear fruit. Now, I want us to look also at verses 16 through 18. And with this, I'll, I'll close. If we were to skip verses 16 and 17 and go directly to 18, I think it would really make sense. And I want us to do that. Verse 18 says, So take care how you listen. For whoever has to him, more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks shall be taken away from him. So the one who listens, the one who has good soil, will continue to bear more fruit. And like these disciples, will continue to learn more and have the word of God be explained to them. They will have vision to see. Yet those who are hard-hearted, who do not have genuine saving faith and reject the word of God, it says, he, whoever does not have even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. And so as we see that verse in light of the parable of the soils, I want us to read verses 16 and 17. Now, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. Uh, as I read this, you know, my first thought was, okay, this is like Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't think he's talking about the light as being the, the proclamation of the word as far as uh, our good works. I see it as the proclamation of the word in regards to judgment. Look at verse 17. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. In the context, the light represents God's judgment. God will judge how people respond to it. And his judgment is in his word. Those who would seek to ignore his word and thus ignore the prospect of judgment are like those who put a covering over the lamp, hoping that the light won't be seen. Three of the four soils give evidence of faith, yet only one perseveres. It would seem that the evidence of who receives the word and those that don't is clear. 
Yet, I take verse 17 to point to the reality that we really don't know the heart of the individual. And it may be the one who seems to receive the word really doesn't. Because the temptations and the things of this life come in and choke it out. We can't play games with God. We can't hide from His omniscience. In the last day, God will discern whether or not we have truly received His Word. Now, those of you who are listening, I want to ask you just some really, really down-to-earth, but really thought-provoking, hopefully, uh, but then also... um, rubber meets the road questions. I want to ask you if you have received God's word. I see a connection here between the hard-hearted ones who cannot see and the soils that do not produce lasting growth. The three the Christian faith is not how much data or information you've accumulated, nor is it what you find agreeable. It is seen in pursuing him and valuing obedience. The disciples wanted to understand what God's word meant when it came from Jesus. We should want to understand God's word when it comes from the Bible and those who share it with us. By understanding it, we welcome it into our lives and allow it to change our value system to where we love obedience more than the things that could possibly choke out or uh, cause our weak profession to fail. So, God will hold us accountable for our response to his word. In short, are you born again? There's only one soil in this parable that represents true salvation. The other three, as I see it, are unbelievers. Is God's word stale to you? almost unrecognizable like it was to the Pharisees? Do you find that after hearing this parable and examining your life, you describe your response to God's word like the weak or the the distracted? Or maybe just the hard-hearted? Are you justifying disobedience, ongoing disobedience, based on what you hear from God's word? Or maybe from hypocrisy? Or, I'm sorry, are you justifying disobedience based on who you hear God's word from? Or their hypocrisy? Are you holding on to an event in the past where you made a profession of faith, but frankly the fruit has never been lasting? And the desire to know God through his word is meh. Repeatedly rejecting the implications of the word in your life Do you find more comfort in wealth than in godliness? Are there things that repeatedly distract you from the word so that church or that the hearing of God's word has more to do with you getting fixed and your problems getting solved than it is you getting to know God and becoming like him? God will hold us accountable for our response to his word. And true saving faith is one that welcomes God's word, not just understands his word. It's also one that welcomes the implications of his word, painful though they may be. There will be lasting fruit from those who are truly in Christ. 
But the second principle I want us to leave, and I think it's, it's more of an application of this first principle, God holding us account, uh, re- accountable for our response. I think we can also see this as an application. While God does not hold us accountable for how others respond to his, to his word, he does want us to pray for their response. What do I mean by that? Well, we should pray for the Lord to make the soil of their heart prepared. That God would cause them to understand and to welcome the gospel. That he would illumine their minds to the gospel so that they might be born again. And I feel that we should also pray for the Lord to keep Satan from taking that word away from our unbelieving friends and relatives. And this is, in particular, this is how I've been praying this past week. God, please don't take the word away. Don't let, I'm sorry, don't let Satan take the word away from the hearts that I've shared with the gospel. You know what? I've actually seen the Lord answer that prayer request in a really neat way this past week. So I have several friends uh, that, that I've been burned about with the gospel. And I've shared the gospel with them. And they've come to mind a number of times, especially throughout the, the, the COVID uh, quarantine time. And I've been thinking about them and just how we haven't been able to get together. And I've been texting them periodically. And, and, and they came to mind, and in particular in this verse, you know, thinking about Satan taking his word away. And asking God, please don't take the word away from their hearts. And as I was driving down uh, near their home, there's a church near their home. And on that church sign, there was a, a message of Psalm chapter 46. It said Psalm 46, 1 through 11. And wouldn't you know, that's a passage of scripture that I texted to them several weeks ago in trying to help bring them comfort. That God should be our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And so it was as if God, I saw, answer that prayer like, you sent that text to them. And I don't know how God is going to use it, but he happened to put a church sign with that text right near their house to where when they drive by, maybe they'll see it, maybe they'll connect the dots. I sure hope they do. But God has also answered that request in that they of their own have reached out to us. And we've gotten together using social distancing, qualifying that. But we were able to get together just within the past 48 hours and spend some time talking and and renewing that relationship and me affirming to them that I'm praying for them. And so God, God can do whatever he wants. And I think we ought to pray for our unbelieving friends and relatives that he would keep Satan from snatching that gospel away. Because I think Satan does that. In fact, I know he does that. Because Jesus says that he does. So, how will you respond to the word? Will you respond in a way that continues to bring forth fruit? If you've never truly responded in salvation, would today be that day? I don't care where you grew up. I don't care what profession of faith you've made in the past. If those are genuine and true, then praise God. But as you look at his word and as you examine yourself to see whether or not you're truly born again and you find that wanting, then may today be the day of salvation. And if you are saved, please pray for the soil of the hearts of those who do not know Christ so that God may do his work and so that fruit 
persevering fruit may be yielded. Well, thank you for hearing the word of God. I trust that it was biblical. I trust that it was clear. And I trust that it would change you through the spirit um, as it is changing me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the attention given to it here this evening by those watching. Thank you for uh, their uh, willingness to participate. So God, do your work. And would we receive the privilege of you doing it through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful night and a wonderful week. Please know that we are praying for you uh, regularly. Um, please let us know how we can pray for you. Uh, God bless you, and we'll see you soon.